it's difficult to underestimate, and we shouldn't underestimate the cultural significance of a Le Pen victory. Because it's so powerful as a culture shock, even saying it makes me sort of just think of how, at the end of the day, how implausible it is. And so the kind of knock-on effect about somehow the French deep state comes into operation to try and shut down as much as possible the Le Pen operation, I think would definitely kick in. I can imagine how difficult it would be for her to govern within an environment overwhelmingly dominated by a powerful state, huge civil service, the vast, vast majority of whom are implacably opposed to the idea of sort of Le Pen and the family and the kind of dynasty and then what it means politically, etc. Bonjour, or rebonjour, I should say, because this is uh, the second part of our rundown of the first round of the presidential elections in France, and looking forward to the second round and delving a little bit more deeply into what's going on in French society. Uh, I should also say, if you haven't heard the part one, this is our five-year anniversary. We've done over 250 episodes since we began in 2017, and uh, we're delighted uh, for all of you to have followed us uh, this whole time, or if you are recently started listening to us. Um, just to give you a little overview, uh, we started this actually with the explicit aim of trying to explore the contours of the breakdown of the neoliberal order um, and how we might move beyond today's impasse. Uh, this also led to a book, if you're not aware of it, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, which uh, develops on the ideas that we first advanced on this podcast. And that's available for sale uh, if you haven't got yourself a copy yet. Uh, there's some new stuff in there that you probably won't have heard on this podcast that we tried to explore in there. Also, if you prefer to read in German, um, and excuse me for my pronunciation already in advance, uh, but Das Ende des Endes der Gesichte is now out from ProMedia, which is an Austrian publisher. And there'll be a translation in Italian on the way later this year, at the beginning of next year, and hopefully other languages uh, to come too. And uh, finally, if you haven't ever done so, and you've been listening to us for a while and you like the podcast, uh, please drop us a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, give us five stars if you'd like, as it'll help others discover the podcast too. Okay. So, so five, five year anniversary. If this, had, if, if this was a wedding, if this is a marriage, it would uh, be wood. That would be the the symbol of a five year anniversary. Just to let listeners know. Well, that's a happy yeah. five year. George, George yeah. has got wood. Thank you, George. Yeah, you give us wood, listeners. Thank you. Um, anyway, so this is this is the second part of the uh, discussion on the French presidential election, um, and uh, I will pass over to Phil, who's going to introduce our guest and uh, tell us a little bit more about what we're talking about specifically. Thanks, Alex. So uh, first, uh, the first round, um, uh, or rather, the first part was with a colleague of mine at Kent, um, Charles Dublin, and this is with another colleague who is a professor at Cambridge, Chris Bickerton. And Chris is the author of um, several books on the European Union, um, which I'd strongly recommend to listeners um, and whose themes, in fact, we've spoken about before in the um, in Britain's tangle with the European Union over the last several years. So you'll find some of the links in the show notes. So please do, um, please do check them out. Hi, Chris, welcome to the pod. Uh, thanks for having me on. Pleasure. So um, I thought it would be good to open up by thinking back to 2002. So the last time I think that Chris and I spoke directly um, about French politics um, was in 2002. And what happened in 2002 was Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is Marine Le Pen's father, and was leader of what was then the National Front, the Front National, had made a shock breakthrough in the presidential election of that year when he eliminated the candidate of the left, who had also been prime minister previously, who was Lionel Jospin. And who was, um, I mean, and I remember, at the t- so I was 22 at the time, and I remember it was absolutely, it was astounding, not only because Lionel Jospin seemed to be such a sure thing, but it was also a very familiar pol- figure in the politics of the time. He was partly rallying opposition to the um, uh, prospective invasion of Iraq the following year. And also it was astounding because Jean-Marie Le Pen was um, his background on the French far right as an ex-paratrooper. Um, you know, there was that was the perhaps uh, the earliest time that I can remember in my life, at least, that there was the um, panic about the possible possibility of a fascist taking over a major European state. 
And this helped to rally, this possibility helped to rally French politics um, to the centre and led to the landslide re-election of um, the Gaullist Jacques Chirac. So um, at the time, I remember chatting about it, and I put forward the idea that rather than kind of endorse the decaying um, French political class, I thought perhaps it would be better to come up with kind of a way to break through the deadlock and rather than prop up Chirac to offer an alternative. And I suggested at the time back in 2002, maybe it'd be good to say vive la sixième république. So bring an end to the fifth republic and put forward the sixth republic. Now I can't actually, I was very taken with this brilliant slogan. I'm less taken with it now because it's become the slogan of um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the candidate, the left-wing candidate who came in third in the presidential election this year. I can't actually remember what you said in response, Chris, to my suggested slogan, but I wonder if you could, um, I mean, maybe maybe you can tell us if you can recall, but also if you can maybe uh, tell us how you, what you think looking back 20 years to um, the first incursion made by um uh, La Famille Le Pen 20 years ago. I think if I remember correctly, I think I coughed politely and changed the subject, uh, but maybe maybe that's not the case. Um, no, I, I, in fact, I'm beginning to remember differently. And, you know, I think perhaps you appreciated the political vision and imagination involved in calling for a Sixth Republic. I think uh, I should have done a bit more preparation and dug out some of the things that we wrote at the time um, and to see whether whether that slogan appeared in the way that you recall it. Um, it's a long time ago now, 2002. Um, a lot has changed since then. Um, I think uh, it had a quality which I, which I do remember, which was a slightly strange one. It was on the one hand evolutionary and on the other hand completely um, a non-event. Um, so the revolutionary dimension, I suppose, was, as you said, you had, you know, um, uh, a mainstream party, a governing party, somebody such as Jospin, who kind of existed in the, in, in the orbit of, of the great former leader, François Mitterrand, um, because the left was so fragmented in that election and there were some people who ran uh, on a separate ticket, uh, which really split the vote um, a lot, particularly somebody who ran completely unsuccessfully again, this time Christine Taubira, um, Jospin didn't get through. And there was, you know, a real surprise. And I remember um, a sense that uh, on the part of the French press, particularly the sort of, um, you know, the journalists of the main French newspapers who embarked on this curious campaign of traveling around France between the, the first and the second round to discover who these National Front voters were. Um, and what you got was a clear sense that they just had no idea. Very no familiar, yeah. It's a bit like in 2016 um, in the UK, sort of trying to dig out who this strange species of French person was. Um, uh, so, and it, so, you know, politically it was certainly very significant, but the reason why I said it was a non-event is that at the time there was never any doubt, I think, in anybody's mind about what the results would be come the second round. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, complaining, I suppose, on the part of Socialist Party voters that they would have to vote for a centre-right politician. Um, they'd have to vote for somebody who's very familiar to them, Jacques Chirac, and so you had these cartoons of French voters going to the polls with a sort of close peg on their nose. Um, but they nevertheless went to vote. And the result when it came wasn't really a surprise to anybody. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you compare then and now, things are very different now because I think France has changed a lot and the electoral um, geography has changed and the parties have changed. And so that'd be the first thing I say is that going back, I think, to then, um, uh, it felt like it was dramatic, but it wouldn't really have any impact because there was no chance that Jean-Marie Le Pen would actually get anywhere electorally. Um, what he got in the first round was basically his sort of ceiling in, uh, in electoral terms. And that has been the case, I think, for a long time, which is that there's been this core sort of far-right vote, uh, national front vote of around 24, 25%, very solid kind of number, sometimes a bit less, never really much more. Um, What's changed in more recent years has been the sense that actually that may be considerably larger um, for lots of different reasons. Um, the thing about the Sixième République, vive la Sixième République, um, I mean, it's become a sort of a big theme. Uh, it's always been, I think, around with the French Fifth Republic, if you think about the way it was set up and 
the plebiscitary quality to it, which uh, de Gaulle cultivated, the heavy sort of concentration of powers in the president, um, the minimal parliamentarism, which is provided by it, the strongly sort of technocratic bent to those people who wrote the fifth constitution in the first place. Um, uh, that sort of unhappiness around uh, around that system has been uh, bubbling away for quite a long time. Um, so I'm would you, to... I mean, do you think then that we're seeing the slow kind of death, the death throes maybe even of the Sixth Republic? Uh, sorry, the Fifth Republic. Is there a Sixth Republic in the offing, given the fact that it's uh, a slogan now associated with the third candidate in this particular election? Yeah, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is very much made at his um, his slogan. Uh, Mélenchon's evolution, though, to be honest, is interesting. I would say that his electoral success has been an inverse relationship to his sort of dramatic constitutional revisionism. Um, the thing that made the difference this time round was partly contingent factors, I think. But most of all, I think Mélenchon had cultivated and developed over the course of a number of years since the last election, um, his programme. Um, it was one of the most detailed, one of the most um, precise, one of the most elaborate, one of the most sophisticated, and one of the most complete of the, all of the electoral programmes. Um, so it was a very serious kind of machine, if you like, the France Insoumise. And as a party, La France Insoumise has been the de facto opposition party since 2017, now in the parliament. So for a lot of reasons, it's a serious political operator rather than this um, insurrectionary movement that it may have looked like in the earlier years. And Jean-Luc Mélenchon himself sort of has evolved as a, as a personality. Um, but so, it is true so you're that... Saying, oh, so, yeah. so you're saying the Sixth Republic belies the actual structure of um, France Insoumise? Uh, you mean that the two are opposed to one another? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, he's still committed, I think, to a lot of the constitutional change which had made his name. But Jean-Luc Mélenchon was definitely a sort of insurrectionary, anti-establishment populist figure who cultivated the notion of the people and the sort of the citizen as this kind of insurrectionary figure. All of that sort of stuff was very much part of his sort of um, political offer. Uh, in 2022, much less so. Uh, it's really a much more detailed sort of electoral program that he offers. Um, but it's true if you take um, uh, uh, across the different candidates, apart from somebody like Macron, but particularly Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, they have in common the fact that they were basically trying, I think, to respond to what you might call the gilet jaune effect, um, something that you may have spoken to uh, uh, with Charles about in the earlier part of this podcast. Um, certainly Marine Le Pen is offering, is offering <coughs> Uh, Marine Le Pen is offering some serious constitutional change um, with a heavy reliance on the referendum. Um, and so this idea of trying to power back to the people, particularly from a system that empowers the president um, in, a, in a, an enormous way, um, and then in a, in a way that more minimally empowers the parties, um, Marine Le Pen's definitely offering a lot of constitutional change. So as an issue, it's sort of become fairly common uh, and is around. I don't think it signals, to be honest, sort of the death knells of the Fifth Republic um, in an insurrectionary or sort of revolutionary way. Um, it's more part of the more general sort of, um, uh, it evokes the times, I think, this sort of idea that you can rely more on plebiscites or try and empower people through more direct forms of democracy. What we should remember is that Macron is not an enemy of playing around with constitutional uh, procedures either. On the contrary, you know, he's a real innovator with his kind of reliance on this, you know, national consultation that basically empowered him directly to sit in rooms for up to seven hours chatting to people. Um, his, also, his, you know, a lot of his ideas, a lot of people who've advised him around more direct forms of democracy are, if you like, the other side of the Marine Le Pen, Jean-Luc Mélenchon coin. Yeah. So I guess that takes us straight to the next question, which is if you could talk us through the two candidates' routes to victory, what does it look like for Macron and what does it look like for Le Pen, at least as you see it? Well, I suppose there's two different things there. One is what, you know, what may happen to them. The other is what do they need to do to win? Um, the so what, question, what, you, what do they need to do to win is the, is the precise question. Yeah, that's an easier question to answer, I think. Um, uh, they both seem to know, I think, what it is they need to do to win. Um, uh, Macron, if you think about the vote this time in the first round and some of the sort of studies around uh, who voted for him and who voted for the other candidates are sort of, you know, are around now. So it's easy to access that information. And it's quite interesting. Macron, 
got a pretty high score um, in a sense, to be honest. He's running second time round, so there's none of all the anti-incumbency effect that you'd expect hasn't really translated into a, a worse score for him. He came top, not a really significant achievement, and his score was uh, you know sizably uh, 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 quite a bit bigger than it was uh, in 2017 in the first round. So who's been voting for him? Uh, well, he seems to have clearly secured the centre-right vote, um, uh, partly because of the promises he was making around uh, um, around pension reform, which has been a big sort of uh, totemic sort of issue for the French um, uh, for French capital, if you like, for kind of the French entrepreneurial elite, big issue for a long time, and for the French right, a big issue. It attracts a lot of support on older voters, older right-wing voters in France, for whom pension reform means making the system more secure over the long time, so that over the long term, so that their pensions are safe. It's kind of a self-interest. A very large number of sort of over 65 centre-right voters who had voted for Fillon uh, in the first round of the presidential election in 2017 voted for Macron this time round. So that explains, I think, his success there and the increase in the number of votes. Valérie Pécresse did very badly and one of the reasons why is that she just couldn't secure the Fillon vote. They actually went to Macron in quite a large number. Um, so for Macron, his big task, if he thinks that he's got the right in the bag, in his mind, he's kind of, if you were following over the last couple of days since the, the first round, he's um, vacillating a bit on on the pension reform, suggesting that it doesn't have to be as dramatic as it as it as he'd suggested it would be, but I think he thinks he's got the right, uh, the centre right vote in the bag. Therefore, the big task is how much can he get from the left, uh, and the left in France has really crystallised crystallised around Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He got twenty percent of the vote, a bit more in fact. Um, uh, one in five French voters voted for Mélenchon. Um, who are they going to vote for? So Macron's a path to victory lies entirely through getting as many of those uh, as possible for him. It's unlikely he's going to win over people who would vote for Eric Zemmour. It's unlikely he would win over that small rump vote for Pécresse. Un, uh, though he could, I suppose, they probably would transfer to Macron. It's unlikely he would get anyone who's been voting for Marine Le Pen up until now. So who's up for grabs? Which well, really the Mélenchon vote. Um, and some of these smaller sort of... Uh, uh, pots of votes for others on the left, the ecologists, for example, um, uh, and the social. And there are tiny numbers of votes, but they, you know, can well transfer to Macron. But really, it's that big core Mélenchon vote. So for him, he has to try and win them. Um, how's he going to do it? Well, it's pretty hard. Um, you know, culturally, there's a, an enormous gulf between Macron and voters for Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, on issues. What, what do you mean gulf. culturally? I mean concretely. What does it mean? I think they're just different sorts of people, to be honest. Um, uh, a different sort of electoral profile. Um, and the electoral profile for Jean-Luc Mélenchon is um, and it's quite young. Uh, what remains of the organised left in France votes for Jean-Luc Mélenchon now, and that's fairly small, but it's still a, a, it's a group of voters. So what remains of the organised left, a lot of young voters, a lot of urban centres, university sort of uh, towns, uh, ecological-minded uh, uh, uh that's the profile, you know, not poor by any means. Jean-Luc Mélenchon isn't hovering up working class votes, uh, not at all. What you've got is this mass exodus from the Socialist Party that over time has worked its way in large part into the into La France Insoumise. Um, but in terms of their sort of lifestyle and their attitude towards the state and power, I think they are fairly different from Macron, much more polished, much more sort of establishment figure, almost the antithesis of him. It's the kind of more sort of hippie-ish kind of start, you know, sort of... Um, uh, that's, that's just not Macron by you know a million miles away. Um, and in terms of ideas, it's actually the kind of ideas that I think he despises, to be honest. Um, the stuff he said about Jean-Luc Mélenchon and La France Insoumise over the years is pretty sort of um, disparaging, to say the least. Um, so can he? I mean, can he convert some of these voters then? I think they're going to stay at home. Uh, I think mass abstention in the second round is definitely a possibility. The only reason why we're talking about a close runoff is because of abstention, I think. Um, right. And the ones who are the ones who are going to abstain are not voters for Marine Le Pen. The ones who are going to abstain are the possible voters for Macron who just can't bring themselves to vote. Um, I remember having this argument back in 2017 about whether the, the left should vote for Macron. Um, yeah. and the argument in favour of abstention was a lot harder to make then than it is now. Yeah. But it's harder to make now because we've seen Macron and there is very little in his um, during his tenure 
to very little sucker for the left for that reason? Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think, yeah. I mean, it's a big reason. Um, back in 2017, you could still have people who I think were deluded in the idea that Macron was a kind of left-right sort of mixture and there'd be some good stuff for the left and some good stuff for the right and it wasn't so bad to vote for him. And uh, yeah, his political career at the end of the day had been associated with a socialist government rather than anything else. Um, those illusions, I think, have been completely uh, destroyed over the last five years. Um the reforms that you've pushed has really been reforms to try and open up France in uh, in a direction to solidifying the market, um, uh, making France more efficient, making people go back to work is one of his kind of big slogans, reduce unemployment, that's the way he's going to raise people's purchasing power, all of that sort of stuff. So ideologically, if there is some sort of character to him, it clearly lies on that side. Um, He's also committed himself to a flagship reform of the pension system, which the left absolutely hates, which is the one thing which has got more people out on the streets since 1995 has been pension reform. Um, so, uh, so I think it's going to be um, a challenge for him, but it's also harder to do it again, just because doing something twice makes you feel more of an idiot, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, the first time around, you can be forgiven for being a bit innocent. Second time around, it's like, well, who are you kidding? You know, what do you think this is going to change voting for Macron? You're just propping up the system. That's basically the feeling, I think. So, okay, so that's interesting. So you don't think the anti-fascist, that anti-fascist line that has um, kind of propped up the republic since 2002, that it's holding anymore? Um, but well, I don't know, it's holding a bit. I mean, Jean-Luc Mélenchon made a speech where he said to his supporters, do not vote for Marine Le Pen. And yeah. he said it four times. But he didn't endorse he did Macron not, either. He did not endorse Macron. Mélenchon's position seems to be uh, abstention, which obviously, from his perspective as a sort of individual politician, is great to his advantage. Um, it makes it a much closer result, empowers him definitely in the legislative elections, I'd have thought. Um, clearly, he's a vest, got a vested interest in a close result, but he's the sort of kingmaker. Yeah. So talk us through, so what does Le Pen's route to victory look like? So Macron is to try and convert as many of the Mélenchon voters as he can. Like you say, pick up the small bits and pieces, the kind of the remnants of the other votes. What does uh, Marine Le Pen's route look like? So, um, well, as you know, Phil, I'm not a sort of great kind of uh, football sort of fan or anything, but to use a kind of football metaphor. Um, That's okay, because the other two guys on the podcast are football crazy. So this is their opportunity to come in and correct you. Don't worry. Okay, well, please do. Uh, so it's basically if you're in the relegation zone um, at the end of the season, sometimes it's up to you. So if you win all the matches, you can stay up. But sometimes it's just not It's not just up to you. It actually does depend on what the other teams do. And in which case, you basically you're screwed if another team loses or wins. It's not only in your hands. Marking the bet, I think it's a bit like that. Her victory is not only in her hands. It depends on a number of other factors that are beyond her control to an extent. One is what the Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters do. Um, if abstention is very high, then I think the result is much more likely to be a close result than if abstention isn't really particularly much higher than it was last time around. And people at the end of the day say, OK, we don't like uh, Macron, but we really don't like Marine Le Pen a lot more. And so even though we're sort of radical France Insoumise voters, we're still going to vote for, for, for Macron. So that's not up to her. So it's, it's not much she can do about that, I think. Um, She's not likely, I think, to really cultivate um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters, really. Um, there might be some, I think, uh, who could conceivably, plausibly vote for, for Marine Le Pen, purely on the question, on the kind of social question, questions of inequality. Um, there is, you know, the France Insoumise kind of electorate, a lot of it um, is bound up with the patterns of immigration in France. And so something like, I think, just under 70% of, um, of the Muslim vote is a France Insoumise vote. So they're not going to shift over to voting for Marine Le Pen. But you have kind of white working class France Insoumise voters who I think are more likely to be convinced with the sort of, I mean, she's made the whole kind of cost of living crisis the platform for her campaign so far. She's not really focused on immigration at all uh, because Eric Zemmour has spoken about that so much uh, and Picresse as well to some extent. Um, so there's, you know, some transfer there. But basically for her, I think um, the abstention would be better for her. Uh, then I suppose my view, and this is just my view, I'd, I've not really seen other people say this particularly, I think the thing that did her in last time was that she just didn't come across as a competent um, governing candidate. Uh, this is the debate that she had where she was called out by Macron about her floating the possibility of leaving the euro and what have you. 
Yeah, it was the second presidential debate that's on television. There's usually two debates between the first and the second round. Um, she made a number of mistakes. One, one was her policy in the euro, which was really unclear. The second was that she confused the names of different companies that she was trying to accuse Macron of having dealt with badly when he was the minister for the economy, and she got them wrong, and so Macron sort of made fun of her. The overwhelming sense coming out of that was that she just didn't really have a handle on things, and it was a real car crash. Um, now, she spent literally the last five years trying to get over that um, and has emphasized as much as possible and has really worked on the solidity of her policies. She's become much less radical in some of the things that she said in order to be much more sure-footed when she has to debate. It's unclear, I think, whether she'll come across better in a debate with Macron, uh, but it is possible. Um, and so if she does, and if those demons of 2017 have in some way sort of, are, are, you know, are behind her, and if she can convince on the competence question, um, uh, then I think it would make a difference. In that sense, the whole anti-fascist kind of front really has collapsed because actually the judgment is on the candidates themselves. It's yeah. not some principled refusal under any circumstances to vote for her, which is how it would have been in the past. It's actually taking her on her own merits and somebody saying, OK, I've got a more open mind. And if she can convince the open-minded voters that actually she is capable as a president, then I think that's really her route to victory. What's, on, what's not clear is how big that pool of voters actually might be. Right. right. And I and guess I mean, that's the slogan of Femme de Da, which is the slogan on all the posters, Stateswoman. Is that right? That would be the right translation? <clears throat> well, she's taken on. Now her new, um, her new um, poster has no slogan whatsoever, apart from, I think it's Pour tous les Français, for all the French. No fanfare, no sort of nothing, no party kind of uh, iconography, nothing at all. It's just her and then for all the French. Um, so she's really, yeah, I mean, Femme d'État, um, uh, the emphasis is on her as a plausible presidential candidate. And to be honest, she knows that she's got the radicals to her right in the bag. Zemmour voters, however much they may have not liked Marine Le Pen, are really unlikely to stay at home or to vote for, um, for Emmanuel Macron. So yes, she so can move more to the centre. The effect of Zamor is an interesting one. I know Alex wanted to raise it. Yeah, no, I mean, the effect of, because I mean, obviously this was the, the novelty of this election or was going to be the novelty of the election and the amount of media buzz there was around Zemmour, um, fear-mongering, I suppose, as well, that someone had emerged who's even to the right of, of, of Le Pen on, um, on immigration and actually economically, I think, as well, it's, it's probably to her right. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of the reading of this has been that he had the effect of making her seem less scary effectively uh, do you firstly i mean do you buy that argument yeah i think um i think <clears throat> zemmour and many others uh including the people who were jumping ship from the rassemblement national and loads of people were jumping ship uh massively underestimated marie le pen i think um as a person as a sort of political operator um detraction of the new, the sort of novelty of the new. Uh, but basically they thought that she was a busted flush. Um, and so they wanted to leave before, you know, this sinking ship that is the Rassemblement National. And that was, I think, a mistake. I think it underestimated the sort of, um, the, the, the staying power, the, the attraction of her more generally as this big, important political figure. Um, was he, do you think he was talked up perhaps as a deliberate way to divide the right-wing vote, that perhaps he was kind of flattered in horror stories in the liberal mainstream press? Or is that too pushing, pushing, the, pushing it too far? It's maybe a bit sort of, um, it suggests sort of too much foresight, I think. I think it was more just the sheer sort of excitement and the kind of fawning over this sort of new figure who is sort of this outrageous person, whether it's in the form of indignation or sort of admiration, um, he got people's attention. Um, and again, I think it's well, it's partly the sort you know the media sort of circus. You get absorbed into this kind of media circus that is interested in these things, and you maybe forget that sort of on the ground, a lot of people probably thought he was a bit of a charlatan, wasn't really sure what he was going on about. But Marine Le Pen's been around for ages, and she, you know, is a, a more solid sort of person you can count on. Um, Does it not also uh, underline the role of political parties? I mean, Zemmour, you know, was basically went from from zero to being, you know, reasonably high in the polls very quickly, but without any sort of ground game, without any sort of national organization, and the Rassemblement National 
whatever other problems it might have, it does have some kind of party infrastructure around the country, right? Yes, well, no, I mean, the Rassemblement National has always, in a sense, actually been quite weak as a sort of party structure um, and has lacked some of the sort of local implantation that has been traditionally the preserve of the of the larger mainstream parties of the kind of Gaullist and socialist traditions. Um, so it's been a weakness, I think, for Marine Le Pen in the past. This time around, I think, yes, it definitely was a factor that actually was, you know, was good for her to have this party structure and a kind of loyal party structure and militants that were able to sort of push her line. But, you know, in 2017, Macron won without a party. I think it's not a sine qua non of success in the presidential elections. Um, Zemmour was able to get the number of votes um, which he needed in order to stand as a candidate. Um, some others, you know, who tried to stand couldn't get the number of votes because they really didn't have any sort of structure whatsoever. So in that sense, I think if Zemmour had been doing better in other ways and for other reasons sort of proceeding further and being more successful, I don't think the part, the absence of a party would have held him back in a decisive way. Um, but it's more, I think, that... Um, uh, I mean, I think he... I mean, I suppose he... Um, he basically made a choice about his campaign, which was to ramp up culture wars, kind of identity wars in France, um, at all costs, in every single way, just push this line. Now, I think politically that was a miscalculation um, because it, to be honest, over the last few months, who's what have people been thinking about in France? Well, it's kind of a common theme. Uh, uh, it's this cost of living crisis, which the yeah. UK is you know, kind of going through. In France, everyone's worried about how much it costs for them to, you know, to, to fill their car with petrol. In France, territorially, is a very sort of um, disaggregated um, country with a huge territory. And as we know from the Gilets Jaunes, there was a huge number of people who don't live in a big city and take the tram or take the metro every day. They take their car and this is a massive thing. Uh, and so Marine Le Pen, who I think, as I was saying, we, under, we underestimate, estimate, I suppose, her political sense, her political sort of nose. And she thought that this is really the issue that people are caring about and this is what I'm gonna campaign on. Uh, Zemmour, not at all, ideologically much more charged, much more focused, much more doctrinaire. And some of his stuff appealed, but over overall, it generally felt yeah. fell, fell flat. I mean, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, over the past couple of years about France's social crisis, about the divisions in French society, often um, arrayed around cultural issues, you know, around immigration, around race, around, you know, religion, in the case of Islam specifically. And does that, what you're just saying now about the failure of Zemmour to really take off by hammering at those cultural war points, maybe not underscore the fact that that is um, overstated, that maybe the, I mean, that not that French society is all a-okay, I think there's a, probably a deep sense of malaise, but that it is not necessarily a, a kind of cultural one exclusively, or even primarily. Yeah. So both, I think, could be true, certainly not exclusively, and arguably not primarily. I think that's right. I think, um, uh, uh, you know, France is very fragmented electorally. The electoral geography is hugely kind of, uh, heterogeneous. Um, but one of the kind of themes that have emerged over the last few years has been what people call la France périphérique. Um, or maybe let's Phil say that one because you've got a slightly better pronunciation than me. Ah, oh, you said it very, you said it very well. There's no need sure. for me we to can, correct. We can just say peripheral France. Um, and the, the ga as the gammon would say, peripheral France. Yes, yeah, so we all know what we're talking about. Uh, that's emerged as you know a pretty big sort of analysis, which is that electorally, this matters a lot. You know, there is some sort of sense in which um, uh, in which the interests of voters who would classify themselves as somehow being on the periphery matters. And yes, I mean, I think probably you're right, Alex. They have some concerns about cultural integration and the kind of questions that Zemmour was banging on about, but they have a lot of other arguably slightly more pressing concerns. Um, and uh, and I think to be honest, it's kind of interesting. So. You know, Macron did not campaign at all in the first round. Six meetings, one sort of big speech, zero. Uh, declared at the very last day that he could declare that he was a candidate. Why? Because he was busy sort of making peace in Europe and trying to kind of deal with, you know, Vladimir Putin. So he thought that that gave the impression that he was basically a safe pair of hands because he's a serious crisis manager, peacemaker, all the rest of it. What it meant, I think, actually, in practice, is people were really convinced that the most central question was war in Ukraine, and as a result, the impact it would have on their day-to-day -day life, you know, partly through the big uh, sort of um, cost of living fuel crisis and gas mm. prices going through the roof. So he made it a big issue by simply not campaigning because he's too busy. And so people thought, yeah, well, so this is really big. 
okay, we're, you know, sort of interested and sort of moved by what's happening, but how does it affect us in a direct way? Well, it affects us in this cost of living way. And the personal campaigning on, on that more than anything else uh, was really marking the pen. So that's um, that's that's fascinating. Um, I wanted to kind of frame, I suppose I wanted to frame a question around the question of techno-populism. So it's a theme we've, um, you're the co-author of a book on techno-populism with Carlo in Venezia Cetti, and we spoke to Carlo in episode 252 about the book. Um, and so the book, the claim being that this is a new logic of democratic populists in which you have um, technocrats and versus populists, but they're both, um, they both uh, sides of the same coin, um, to, I suppose, summarizing it very, very bluntly. Um, so I wanted to ask you whether you think this is a techno-populist election, and particularly in light of um, what you said in, so you were, you were a frequent uh, contributor on the Talking Politics podcast, um, which uh, recently came to an end, and I listened to the one that you did where you talked about the forthcoming, if this was before the first round, you talked about the forthcoming French presidential election, and you suggested it might be, um, you know, it might be uh, unwise to um underestimate uh, Pecresse, who is the the candidate of Le, of the Gaullists and she hasn't even managed to make the five percent this time round to gain her to gain her deposit back so I mean would given the annihilation of the establishment parties doesn't that suggest a techno populist election yeah thank you for reminding the listeners of one of my predictions. <laughs> yeah you're welcome uh, yeah, thank you. Um, she was, in, I mean, her, her her slogan was La Dame du Fer, um, which was translated literally as the woman who sort of does stuff, gets things done. But it also is a play on words in a sense, because La Dame du Fer is also a sort of a reference to the Iron Lady, to Margaret Thatcher. Um, which I wonder whether that was intentional or not. I don't think it's a kind of real vote winner, really. But anyway, um, uh, she played on that and it you know, completely fell flat. Um, I think her failures were not really because of her slogan. I think they were for other uh, other uh, other reasons, not least, to be honest, that she didn't get the support of her party, really. Um, I mean, she did in a sort of sense. They had this kind of primary and people sort of backed her once they'd lost. Um, but the main one of the kind of main figures, Nicolas Sarkozy, pointedly refused to endorse the centre-right candidate. And he's now kind of come out saying he supports Macron. I suspect Sarkozy is doing some backroom deal with Macron um, and certainly wants to kind of bring his centre-right party into the orbit of Macron post-election, some sort of, not a coalition, but some sort of reform-based alliance within the parliament, something like that, to revive the centre-right. I think that's what his plan is. Um, but so, you know, the reasons why she was weak. Um, I think um, the techno-populist kind of point, I think, is, you know, it's kind of fairly compelling in a sense, which is that, you know, you have... Um, an obvious theme, I think, in the election, which is who's competent to govern. Now, a lot of people think Macron is more competent to govern. Le Pen's big, big challenge is to show that she is equally competent to govern. But this is a big kind of issue. Um, on the other hand, I think um, the prominence of sort of a lot of politicians and the way people have spoken about the, the people, it's not a coincidence that you have in the first top three people who arguably, from a discursive point of view, you really would qualify as populists. Um, you know, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who've cultivated in their own ways and yeah. in their sort of, um, you know, in the ways that you might mean that each would have a slightly different qualifying adjective to the term populist, but nevertheless yeah. have very much fallen within this kind of, um, within this style of politics and this kind of language that they've used. Um, so uh, another sort of, I think, an interesting dimension to it is that I'm not sure whether sort of... Um, you can really make sense of this election in any sort of classical ideological way. You know, um, we had a, a deeply ideological candidate in Zemmour who I think really didn't sort of chime with a lot of people. It just fell flat. Um, all the old traditional ideologies of sort of Gaulism or socialism simply didn't really figure at all. Um, so you're kind of left with a slightly kind of empty election in many ways. Um, and the one thing that stands out is maybe the sort of the 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 powerful sort of you know residual effect of of, of just bread and butter questions definitely um, uh, but I think um, my I would say is I think uh, Marine Le Pen is framing her campaign as sort of me you know on behalf of the people versus these oligarchical elites that's the language that she uses and has used for a long time 
she's kind of you know recycling all the language that the Gilets Jaunes have used. If she is able to combine that language, which is her own for a long time, with a plausible program for government, for government, which she can put across as something that she can achieve herself because she is capable, has learned the lessons, has improved, has, you know, in, men, in Macron's kind of language, has studied hard, you know, this kind of thing that he sort of flaunts, then I think she will have a, a, a powerful combination. And that is really the kind of combination of her expertise and her appeal to the people. But I think it'll be a hard thing to pull off just because of um, uh, just because of her and the fact that it's not an easy sort of thing to, to do, to combine. So what's your prediction? Uh, I, I think it'll be uh, fairly close because I think even possibly very close uh, because I think the my feeling is that abstention will be large. Um, but that's the big if. If that's the case, then I think... You know the prediction holds, which will be a very close result. But I'd be very surprised if she was to win. Um, if she did win, um, how might you see a Le Pen presidency playing out? So, would she? What kind of um, parliamentary, you know, arithmetic would she need in order to have some kind of functioning majority um, in legislative elections in June? I mean, what does uh, what does national rally support look like in legislative terms? And also, would she become like a Trump-like figure um, in the sense that she wouldn't be able to mobilize the kind of um, technocratic and expert uh, kind of cadre, whether she would have the actual kind of cadre that she would need in order to manipulate um, the levers of state power to actually do anything? And folded into that is, would she be subject to the kind of sabotage that um, elected figures like Berlusconi, say, were in Italy when they tried to kind of, um, when they were chafing against the restrictions imposed by the Eurozone? Uh, so I think it's, it's difficult to underestimate, and we shouldn't underestimate the cultural significance of a Le Pen victory. Um, because it's so sort of powerful as a as a culture shock, um, is even saying it makes me sort of just think of how at the end of the day, how implausible it is. Right? Um, so it would be just, you know, really absolutely sort of um, so shocking for many people. Um, people who voted for her very sort of um, very, I mean, it would be a very kind of polarizing result, you know. Um, and so the kind of knock-on effect about somehow the French deep state comes into operation to try and shut down as much as possible the Le Pen operation, uh, I think would definitely kick in. I can imagine how difficult it would be for her to govern within in an environment overwhelmingly dominated by a powerful state, huge uh, civil service, um, the vast, vast majority of whom are implacably opposed to uh, the sort of the, the idea of sort of Le Pen and the family and the kind of dynasty and, the, and what that means politically, etc. So um, not sort of diff too different, I think, in some ways from um, a sort of Mélenchon presidency, but then Mélenchon in some ways would even be more um, easier to accommodate within the the kind of the, the interstices of the French state because a lot of public servants probably have some sympathy for his position. Um, so unless I've completely misread the kind of sociology of the French state, um, I think, yes, there would be a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, difficulties that would be put in her way in order to, to govern. But, you know, France, I think, is also, you know, fairly... Um, uh, fairly uh, imbibed with the rule of law. And so I think people would implement her decisions. I mean, she would be able to govern in, in that sense. Um, but it would be culturally, it would be a real shock for France. It would be something that sort of people would have to digest. It would take a long time. And I don't know what sort of debates would be had, but it would be really quite, you know, quite a big thing. Um, and the European, not deep state, I suppose, the European uh, horizontal state or whatever you might wish to call it. How might the European Union respond? It depends what she wants to do. I think, um, I mean, definitely the, the the toning down of her program in that sense. You know, she's come across as sort of Eurosceptic rather than anti sort of EU as such. Um, there's a sort of plausible environment for Eurosceptic ideas now within the European Union, at least to articulate them, not necessarily to do anything about them, but to articulate them. Um, some of her flagship measures that she sort of flirted with in the past have been taken away. Um, so. They would the kind of obstacles I think would be, to be honest, policy obstacles uh, rather than institutional obstacles. Things that she finds it difficult to do because of the rules that exist. Um, yeah. Stuff around fiscal policy, stuff around sort of um, 
there's a lot of sort of um, uh, state uh, uh, involvement in the economy, which she's been arguing for for a long, long time, which I think would fall foul of quite a lot of uh, EU legislation. So it would be, I imagine that the kind of relationship would be one of juridical sort of um, conflict uh, with the European Union, particularly through uh, uh, the rules of the single market. Uh, I don't, I mean, you know, she could then also try and sort of cultivate a more political project about um, reforming the EU in a much more broad sense. I mean, you have to remember France is, you know, one of the most powerful member states has long sort of made sort of a name for itself as leading Europe in one direction or else. You know, this is really kind of one of the central pieces of the whole European Union architecture. Um, and so if she had some sort of political ambition for really changing the EU as a whole, then, yeah, then I think... Um, uh, all bets are off. I'm not quite sure what the response would be and what political support she might be, which she might have. Uh, she would appear to me as a fairly marginal figure. But it's easy enough if you kind of think of the dying days of sort of the British uh, membership of the EU, you'd have kind of British kind of prime ministers, May, Johnson kind of shuffled off to the side and sort of treated yeah. as peripheral figures. It's very hard to imagine that happening with a, an elected leader of France, of a, of a central kind of, you know, powerful member state. So how the EU machinery would digest a Le Pen presidency, I think would be kind of interesting to watch. Yeah. So, and I guess on a related note, um, you're currently working about a, on a book on European history, European history, that is to say, over the last um, 20 years, um, since the end of the um, last 40 years, indeed, since the end of the Cold War, right? Since 1989, yeah. Since 1989. So, and recently, so I wonder if we want to have you back on to tell us a bit more about that. But also, you recently had a trip to the Baltic states, um, presumably on the anniversary of their secession from the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And um, this coincided with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the project and how your trip to the Baltic went in light of that ongoing research. Sure, sure. I learned that... Uh... Uh, certainly in the case of Estonia, at least, it is absolutely not secession. Um, secession implies the sort of legitimacy of the Soviet Union uh, and the language that a lot of kind of um, people involved in the Baltic independence movement used was the end of the Soviet occupation. And so a sort of um, a continuity with the earlier independent Baltic republics. Uh, kind of, it was kind of interesting. The language was very politicized, but secession was not a term that was generally seen as, as the right term to use. Um, uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's, um, I mean, to be honest, talking about 2002 is kind of, that's the, what the terrain that the book touches on. It kind of goes back and some of those events, you know, in the 90s and the and the 2000s are the kind of critical political moments. So I'll be very sort of interested to dig out in the archives some of your kind of um, writing on the 2002 presidential election, Phil, and see what I'm you have to say about the Sith, about the Sixth Republic. Flattered. I'm flattered. <laughs> Um, but uh, more seriously, um, yeah, it was interesting going, to be honest. I mean, I was in Estonia. I didn't go to the other uh, two Baltic states. I only went to Estonia um, and spent quite a lot of time talking to people who were themselves involved in the independence movement. Um, uh, I had a long chat with a, a woman who uh, is called Mario Lariston, who was the woman who read the Declaration of Independence, uh, um, uh, which was... Uh, uh, very quickly put together immediately sort of in the wake of the coup in the Soviet Union in 1991 in August on the expectation that a hard line would be pursued by Mo Moscow and the troops would come back in and take back control over what had become an increasingly independent um, country. Um, uh, so, you know, talking to people uh, like that and sort of discussing um, the, the shadow of uh, the war in Ukraine was obviously sort of um, uh, there um, and uh, I traveled up to the border. There's a part on the eastern part of Estonia, there's a, a city that's really dominated by Russian speakers um, called Narva and that's one just on the border with, with Russia. Um, and it was interesting talking to people there about what they thought, uh, kind of what they thought um, in their own sort of identity terms, whether they thought- You said these are Russian Russian speakers, they're ethnic Russians? Well, so, um, from an Estonian perspective, absolutely yes. So they are the, you know, they're uh, the population that came to Estonia as part of the uh, population programs of the Soviet Union, and it involved sending quite a few people from different parts of Russia and other republics of the Soviet Union into somewhere like Estonia to work in factories and to take, you know, to get involved in some of the other uh, activities um, that were taking place in, within the territory of Estonia. Um, 
So when it came to Estonian independence, they were not considered Estonian citizens because Estonian citizenship was defined as anybody who uh, was Estonian uh, by birth, um, but that is to say could trace their lineage in, uh, in birth terms back to the pre uh, to the pre-war Estonian Republic. Um, and if you couldn't do that, if your place in Estonia by birth post-dated uh, the annexation uh, of Estonia by the Soviet Union, then you didn't have citizenship. Um, and you were offered instead what they described as a kind of gray passport, kind of a non sort of, you were neither Russian nor, um, nor Estonian, but you had a, a, a gray passport that could allow you to travel into Russia. And also you were able to travel across Europe on that. Uh, and so some of them did take Russian citizenship and have Russian passports, and some of them went through the various kind of hurdles that are required, particularly in terms of language, to become Estonian citizens, uh, and many of them still have those great passports. Um, they sort of, it was interesting, there was a kind of, you know, if you're sort of between kind of, I don't know, sort of 30 and sort of 45, maybe kind of 25 and 45, it's a sort of lost generation in identity terms. You know, you don't identify really with Estonia because you don't quite feel as if you've been accepted as an Estonian. Uh, in a formal sense, often you haven't, or even if you have got an Estonian passport, you don't quite feel Estonian, but you really feel quite alienated from Russia. So you don't feel Russian at all. And you really don't associate or identify with Russia in the way that your parents do. Um, so it's a kind of, it's like a bit like a lost generation. Um, but I suppose what was interesting was looking at one point we were sort of just on the border looking across to on the Russian side and it's separated by a river. And there's a small kind of crossing point, which is like a sort of tunnel that you can go across over the river. Uh, but just looking across uh, onto the other side, it was a slightly strange kind of feeling. It felt like it had really been completely cut off. Um, all the architecture was kind of early Soviet architecture. Um, it was very sort of uh, sparsely kind of populated. There was a few people kind of walking across there. Um, but looking out from the Estonian side, it felt as if you're looking out onto another world, one that had been really quite definitively cut off. It's kind of a slightly strange sort of uh, feeling. Um, but yeah, I, I did a lot of interviews um, and we'll keep doing interviews in other parts of Europe over the next couple of years uh, as I work on the book. Well, it sounds fascinating and um, good luck with it. And we'll be, uh, we'll look forward to having you back on um, the talk about it more in future. Well, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. It was a great. Uh, I was delighted to be uh, to be on, and um, uh, thanks for inviting me. Cheers, Chris. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, no. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. I'll have to uh, look forward to to discussing your book, actually, and hearing a little bit more about that. Uh, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us for these for this two parter on uh, France, and uh, of course, we'll be back talking a little bit more about this after the French election. I mean, certainly if Le Pen wins, we'll have plenty to discuss. Um, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about that. Um, but that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>